Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Raise your hand if you enjoy having arguments with people who see the world differently from you and who end up leaving you feeling exhausted, angry, or worse, just about every time you have a disagreement. I can't see you through the ether, of course, but I'm not imagining many hands are being held high at this moment. The truth is, most of us would rather have a root canal than get into a tussle with a colleague, family member, or employee knowing any false move could lead to raised voices, emotional outbursts, or permanent resentments. And while many people have understandably come to see arguments as being entirely unproductive exercises, and therefore something to be actively avoided, we all know it's entirely unrealistic to believe we can successfully avoid them all. And I think we also know that disagreements are a natural part of life, and what we really need is a far better understanding of how to make them less painful and more productive. Before inviting Buster Benson to be a guest on this podcast, I read his new book called Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. And just his title alone made me ask myself, what could be more useful in improving human relationships than learning how to disagree productively? So if you think about it, none of us were ever really taught how to argue. And so it's not surprising that so many of our disagreements turn into cat fights, where we believe it's our goal to battle against and destroy the other person, or at the very least, their distasteful ideas. What made me excited to invite Buster to join us is his provocative observation that the art of productive disagreement is the most important meta skill anyone can acquire. And what's a meta skill? Meta skills are skills that elevate all other skills. And so when we learn to disagree productively, the effects become magnified and inherently make us better friends, managers, spouses, and overall human beings. As a top manager at Amazon, Twitter, and Slack, Buster moonlighted in a search for the most effective techniques and a framework people can use to have productive disagreements. And he came to discover that conflict doesn't have to be unpleasant. In fact, properly channeled, conflict can be the most valuable tool we have at our disposal for deepening relationships, solving problems, and coming up with new ideas. So our discussion today is focused on making all of us far more effective in maneuvering through disagreements, a great leadership skill to have, by the way. And Buster has many brilliant strategies to help us in that regard. He's in Berkeley, California. I'm in my studio in La Jolla, California. Welcome to the podcast, Buster Benson. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you. I want to get right to it. And at the start of your book, Buster, you say that most people approach disagreements as if they were battles, which, you know, kind of really strongly resonated with me, particularly in the workplace. You know, we just, it's an arm wrestle every time. And because most of us were never really taught how to have a productive disagreement, we kind of feel it's our goal to either demonize the other person or at least convince them that their view of the world is wrong. This is the way you set it up. So I want to start there. How did we learn to treat disagreements as personal threats? Why do we take them so personally? And as an overview for uh, what I suppose will be the rest of our discussion, Give us a sense of optimism that there really are ways of having truly civil agreements with other people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, disagreements as battles has been a really useful tool for us as a species for a very long time. Like this is exactly how the world works in terms of, you know, pre-cognition, pre-institutions of reason and and science and all these other things that we've, we've built up. This was the way that you claim your spot on the hill or claim the tree that you'd like to sit under. You just use force. And, mm-hmm. and, and when you think about everything as might makes right or, you know, woe to the losers, you know, it makes sense why we would inherit that methodology for our conversations. And so the trick is, well, it was very useful in a certain context historically, and it continues to be like the thing that we could always fall back to it if everything else falls apart. It's not anymore the most productive way to think about this. The kinds of problems we're facing today are really different than they were in the past, and the kinds of even the arena that we're having conversations in is really different. Before, you would have your team, and you would go around, and it is really just about keeping the family together and keeping the tribe together, and Now it's about creating relationships across tribes, about finding ways to collaborate. And the people that can collaborate best are the ones that will ultimately succeed the most. And we're starting to see that. 
But the problem is like, how do we train ourselves to be really great collaborators? How do we train ourselves to see disagreement as an opportunity and as a skill we can practice and foster in ourselves and grow in other people so that we, you know, we don't have to be happy with less. It's still very advantageous to be collaborative, but it's a skill that we haven't really focused on directly as a culture until now. I mean, this is a leadership podcast, and you just said something that really perked me up, which is that not only should we be learning how to be more effective and sort of disavow the ancient way of might makes right, but that teaching other people, particularly people in our circle, how to have a much more compelling discussion that's, you know, that's argumentative at its base is a great way of sort of creating a very collaborative, trustworthy culture, right? Yeah, yeah. This is something that we understand in certain contexts, like skill, education, and onboarding and training and these things where we see like this teacher-student dynamic, but we don't extend that as far as I think we could because we're all both like mentor and mentee in this context. We're all trying to get better at improving our skills of disagreement and conversation at the same time. We can see every single opponent in a conversation, if you think of it that way, as also your your mentee and the person that you're trying to improve in indirect ways. And it's hard just to go into that uh, mode just naturally or accidentally, but if you do it intentionally, it's actually very easy to see things that way. Well, I wasn't going to say this, actually, but... You just triggered something, Buster, that I think I probably should be honest about, which is that you and I recorded this podcast over a month ago, and unfortunately, somehow I managed to botch the technology. And I wasn't going to mention it except for the fact that I've actually had some time now to do exactly what you just described. So, you know, my wife and I get into the same kinds of, you know, disagreements. And that's just, you know, there's sort of like a hard groove. Everybody, I think all relationships have them. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about, like, how can I coach her to have a much more, it's not like we're throwing plates by any means, but you get the idea that if you're having a disagreement, that if everybody has the same ground rules and they're more positive in nature, then you're going to have a better disagreement. You're going to clear the air, you're going to move on. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to tell you as, as we get through this discussion or work through this discussion, that it's actually worked for me very effectively. Oh, and I've seen my wife just be much more responsive. Do I say, hey, can can we just talk about this a little bit? Because this is what I was thinking. And I think just by sharing some of the insights that we're going to go through, that, that there's been actually in a very short period of time, a very marked improvement in the, in the way that we deal with, you know, whatever certain issues wow. that trigger us. That's really wonderful to hear. <laughs> and you know, like we think of relationships, we often talk about how a relationship is about bringing out the best in each other. And that's exactly what this is about, right? There's no reason to get rid of disagreements entirely, but we can use them as ways to sort of sift through the, the blind spots in each other and help each other be better people. And that's what makes us continue to gain benefit from being coupled and partnered together. I love the way you frame that. You know, it's about making other people better, which is very much a focus of this podcast. And but let me level set this because when you talk about this history of, you know, how we've all been hardwired to have disagreements where we go into them thinking win lose, like I'm going to win, I'm going to convince you that I'm right. It's no surprise. And this is a statistic in your book that a stunning number nine in 10 of us now feel that arguments are almost always an unproductive venture. Mm -hmm. So we steer clear of them. Right. Right. And this is in our personal lives. This is in all aspects of life. But even, you know, you think about leading people. It's like, uh, I don't want to have this discussion with that person or even work colleagues. I don't want to get into with that person because this is going to turn into a cat fight. Mm -hmm. And so I guess. You strongly believe that avoidance isn't helpful. I totally agree with you. But tell us why. What have you learned in terms of why having disagreements is so successful and so ideally supportive of healthy relationships? Yeah, if you think about disagreements as basically a marker, a a milestone or a landmark of something really important that is in a currently like a stuck state, and you think of what long-term is going to best guarantee the success of this partnership, this relationship, this group, this team, this company, whatever it is. It's about becoming really high-functioning in terms of addressing and facing problems and, and resolving them, untying the knots, untangling them. 
Avoidance is what we do when we know the right thing to do oftentimes. We know that we, this problem needs to be solved, but we don't know how to do it. And that's why I really think about productive disagreement as a skill, as an art, as a thing that you start off being really bad at and then you slowly get better at it. Because when you're thrown into an arena that you don't have the skills to to really um, sort of operate in successfully, you do run away. That's, that's sort of like the fight or flight response. Like you're going to try to avoid it because even if you know it's the right thing to do, you don't know how. And I understand why it's a natural response, but ultimately it might solve the short-term problem of like, okay, I don't have to deal with this really frustrating thing right now, but that thing that you swept under the rug is going to get worse over time and it is ultimately going to come back and bite you again. So if you think about the long-term, the math doesn't work out in your favor to avoid them. And you end up often having an angrier discussion because you've pent up all the things that you've been wanting to say to somebody for a long time. Is that right. Have you seen that play out too? Yeah, in relationships, you start to expect certain things of people. So if you understand the other person as avoidant and they understand you as avoidant, you'll begin to resent them for that. And it sort of changes the character of your relationship and causes new problems. So they, they not only hide the problems at hand that you're avoiding, but they create new problems about, oh, that person's not pitching in or that person isn't is like blind about this or unwilling to pitch in. And those are new problems, which didn't exist before. <laughs> so yeah, it does sort of create this debt. So any company, you can sort of think of, you know, there's always tech debt, there's culture debt, and there's sort of like anxiety debt of like things that you just have not been able to face with confidence and all that stuff ends up wearing you down, decreasing morale, decreasing happiness, making you less healthy, all these things that starts affecting us in completely random ways than you would expect. Go into that a little bit deeper because I don't recall you using that language debt the way you just described mm -hmm. it. So where's the debt and when do we pay it? Yeah, so I was spent my career in, in tech companies. And so this concept of tech debt has always been, you know, front and center for me of like, the bugs that you, you know, always are just a little bit below the, the priority list. You always want to build new features and you never want to work on the bugs, right? And over time, this tech debt eventually just eats your entire company and causes it to fail. But there's never an urgent need to address it right now until it's too late. And so there's always the struggle between how much of our time should we dedicate to like cleaning things up, cleaning up the debt, you know, cleaning up the stuff that's not urgent but important to address. It does affect the quality of our product, of our service, of our company, but it's not going to be like the sales pitch. It's not going to be on the list of features. It's just going to be like, hey, it works nicer. The thing that was broken before is no longer broken. And that kind of debt exists in relationships. It exists in places way beyond just the tech world, right? You think about, okay, well, you know, there's this cultural debt of this sort of kind of idea has never been heard. Now there's resentment and now there's like, there's, you can't just like, okay, I'm going to hear you now. You have to also make up for all of the the problems of the past you know, like that, that were never addressed. And it becomes harder and harder and harder to do as it goes on. That's really interesting. And I think it is. And it reminds me of a guest that we had on late last year, Kim Scott, who wrote the book Radical Candor, and she talks about, mm -hmm. you know, our unwillingness as managers to deal with problems that are in front of us, specifically dealing with some performance issue or even some behavioral issue that is either not right or bugs us or upsets us or isn't appropriate for the workplace, something that we let go. And she calls that ruinous empathy. Because ultimately, you're ruining that person, mm -hmm. but you're also, in the context of this conversation, ruining the relationship, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you're not doing what you need to do, which is to make sure that you, that line of credit, that debt you're describing doesn't go too long. So tell me in your own personal life, in your own professional life, have you learned like, you know, I'm never going to get too far into debt before I go back and deal with the kinds of problems that create debt? How have you managed that? Yeah, I think part of it is about seeing the thing that's happening, not only in the short term, but the long term impacts it at the same time. And when you do that, the math that you do in your head of like, is this worth addressing right now, shifts a little bit because you're not just after the short term, like, okay, I just don't want to deal with this right now. You're also dealing with, I don't want to deal with this a year from now. And all that stuff eventually, as sort of as you get older and like, you know, as you've sort of seen these cycles happen, you sort of get a, an intuition for the kinds of problems that will come back and bite you. That said, like, there's always a reason to avoid a problem. And oftentimes, I see this at work all the time where, you know, someone will say, like, this is a problem that I see. I'm not going to make a big fuss about it because 
it's not in my job description. Like that's not my primary job to do with this. Like I trust that other people are going to take care of this that are sort of responsible for it directly. That's not often the case. And often there's also the coverage of all problems isn't perfect in the company. And someone has to be going through the cracks and looking for them and trying to fix them or else nobody will solve them. So the thing that I like about Tim Scott's sort of articulation of ruin of empathy is it feels like empathy. It feels like, oh, I'm having empathy for the fact that you're probably doing your best. I'm not going to call out the problems that you're causing. I'm just going to let you do that and assume that somebody else will take care of it. But it's really also not my problemism, which is like, this isn't my job, so I'm not going to do it. And if everyone does that, then everything's going to fall apart. But it also stimulates a little courage because if you've got an employee who works for you and you are creating debt with that person in your language by not confronting an issue, right, then you're not doing your job. So to some extent, you know, there are situations and relationships where you might kick the can down the road, but you're really not doing your job at all if you're not confronting issues. And so this reluctance to have a conversation with people is something that obviously we're going to dig into because it's a huge limitation in leadership. Yeah, yeah. Something you said in your book that I absolutely love is that knowing how to have a productive disagreement with other people is the most important meta skill anyone can acquire. I mentioned this at the introduction, but by meta skill, you mean a skill that elevates all other interpersonal skills, which makes you inherently a better friend, a coworker, a spouse, not to mention a far more effective leader. So my question is, how do you know this? I know this. So there's a first person sort of anecdotal experience of it. It really happened for me when I started to think of disagreement as this horizontal skill that sort of was a foundational layer, you know, sort of thinking of it as the plumbing or the electricity or the, you know, the water system of the world. And if you just look at your calendar and you're like, how much of my day is spent talking to people? And how many of the problems that I have are not about actions, but about communication or clarity. And this has been done through surveys and sort of corporate context, but like almost all CEOs will say that the main problem with their company is alignment and communication and not necessarily about like, oh, the factory is not working as well as it should. It's about like, oh, they don't know what the goal is or, you know, they went off track or we've started focusing on the wrong thing or people are unhappy because they don't understand what's going on. So I just started seeing this pattern where, first of all, all of our problems are about this communication. And so getting better at communication itself is going to apply to such a broad, you can almost you can't think of anything that we do that doesn't require communication. And secondly, there's just this, this gap where we haven't developed the skill. So I saw it as this, you know, we all know how to read and write, and those are important meta skills as well, but we haven't developed the competency of productive disagreement and to the same degree that we have writing and reading and these other things. And so there's a huge opportunity for if we pull this out and focus on it directly, there's a huge amount of sort of low-hanging fruit we can acquire and apply to almost everything. We learn it as a skill, but then how does it make us better in all aspects of our life? Yeah, so the one way to sort of investigate this is to, if you journal or just have like a debrief at the end of the day with yourself, sort of make a list of the things that went well, things that didn't go well, and sort of identify what are the conversations or what are the problems that can be resolved with a conversation and start thinking of them as not as problems that are just there that are just going to get the work around, but as problems that you can address directly. So instead of saying, like, I got to work around this person's like, a bad relationship, maybe I have to go to their boss, or maybe I have to just try to get my work done in a way that's perfect so that they can't criticize it, or, you know, maybe I just have to fire them, you know, whatever it is that you have to do to avoid the problem, you just did it directly. It's faster to just work with it directly because you don't have to find this route around it. And it doesn't pop up again because now you have an improved relationship, you have sort of more insight into how they work. And you sort of invested in the relationship itself, and that will lead to fewer problems down the road. So really, it's about like first sort of thinking about disagreement as and noticing when it happens. So when your blood pressure spikes or when your your heart rates up and you're like, oh, there's a problem that has to be fixed that I need to correct somebody about. Turn that into a shift it into the productive mindset of like, okay, well, what is important? What important thing is being threatened right now? And how can I confirm that they are trying to threaten that? And can we get on the same page and try to work on it together without having to hash out, not having to like figure out who's right or wrong, but actually just focus on the problem and see if you can make progress. And 
you know, there's a lot of different steps to that. But the first step is pay attention to like sort of be mindful about when you enter into that disagreement zone, when you're starting to think of things in a battle zone kind of context and then figure out how to get around that. You're anticipating my next question, which is what is the mindset? So what is your personal mindset when you feel your blood pressure going higher? You can start to feel tense and stressed and even threatened. What goes through your mind? But something you said in the book that I'm certain most people don't realize is that we are almost entirely unsuccessful in changing people's minds when we have an argument with them. Mm -hmm. Most people just don't roll over and go, you're right, I completely agree with you now, and I've completely been persuaded by your compelling and articulate arguments, and I'm now moving on in agreement with you. That's not the way it works, right? So knowing that, what's the mindset? Like, what am I trying to do in a disagreement? And how do you get yourself centered? So you can have one that doesn't knock you off your foundation. Isn't it funny though? Like, so when when you're saying that, you're like, you know, you're right. I agree. You know, everything is said. You can only say it in a sarcastic way because the only time we've ever heard that is when someone has basically just shut you down and said, like, I'm going to do what you say, but I'm just not going to. Like you know that inside they're not on board with it. Mm-hmm. Um, There's they still resent you. And so it's it's you didn't change their mind. You just got them to comply or concede defeat. <laughs> and so first step is to get over this misconception that we can change minds. But that's not the goal. Minds do change, but we don't change them directly. We change them with our own mind changing. And so the way that I think about this mindset is, you know, rather than thinking of it as I'm gonna move your mind from point A to point B, think of both of your minds as like this pile of rocks where you've got you know a million rocks in it and you're trying to move it to a third place. And so you each have to contribute by saying like, okay, here's a question I have for you and I'm gonna understand your perspective better and they're gonna ask you questions about the same thing. And you're eventually gonna build a third sort of perspective that's gonna that see your both of your past perspectives as sort of immature versions of this third perspective that is a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more that sort of trans sends the problem where it's not black and white anymore. And so I call it the voice of possibility, where you don't know where the third thing is yet. You don't know where the third position is. And you have to use the other person's perspective to sort of triangulate it with your own perspective. And so that means you have to use them as a resource instead of use them as a receptacle of new information. I mean, it sort of sees them as in a much more dynamic way, in a way that's a little bit more selfish, because you're trying to use them as a source of new information, insight, enjoyment, and all these other things that you wouldn't if you were just thinking of them as a block to move from point A to point B. So just to pin this down, what you're saying with this sort of pile of rocks is that if a large, big, big rock is what we're arguing over. So if I can get your rock to move, then I've completely persuaded you of my perspective. And what you're saying is that's not the way it works. What you can best hope is that maybe one or two rocks at any one conversation in a disagreement, that if you're influencing them to think differently, you're doing it in small quantities, you're doing it in pieces, small rocks, Mm -hmm. and that you're moving rocks over time. So are you saying that we should be also taking a longer view of having disagreements with people that we may not settle it in the first interaction with them? Absolutely. And the most disagreements that we experience do take place over long periods of time. The important thing to realize is that when you're moving sort of your you might move like one piece of information or one piece of and one belief over at a time. You're also moving your own beliefs over a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this implies a relationship. This implies that you have to get along as you're doing this sort of this activity together, this collaboration of, you know, I'm changing a little bit, you're changing a little bit, and it's a dance a little bit. And it's going to take time. It's going to go on a series of probably conversations over time, days, weeks, months, sometimes years. And so you have to get along while you're doing this, because if every single step is torturous, you're really setting up for a really long period of really unpleasant sort of interactions. So that's sort of why I think about it. It's important to think about the relationship, but also think about what is it that's like going to be meaningful and fulfilling and enjoyable about this interaction that we're going to have for a period of time. And focus on that, because that's going to be the motivation that helps you keep going. Well, I think you also have pointed out something that I think is important, which is to say that... You can't go into this with a fixed mindset of I'm right, this person is wrong, and I'm just going to take the long view until I convince them that you have to be open to hearing what other people are saying and be able to be influenced that, right? Now, I may have a firm belief about something and be interacting with somebody who I also know has a firm belief in that, and that's hard to 
give up yeah. what I'm convinced in. So right. what's your way of persuading me that I need to be open to what other people are saying as part of this process? Yeah, so I think there's sort of this mid-step point in a conversation that is really interesting to get to, especially when you disagree with somebody about something that you know you're never going to budge about. So there's always this question people ask, which is like, I can't understand how anyone could believe X about this, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Like it's completely baffling to me. And they'll say this, like this is sort of how we feel, is the frustration of being stuck because we don't see any viable path to this position. So that's the thing you can learn from this conversation is like, how did this person arrive at this really sort of baffling position? Is it because they had an experience that was different from yours? Is it because they sort of see the world, like maybe their incentives are different, maybe their opportunities have been different, maybe their sort of lens into what is happening is different. And if you could ask the kinds of questions that uncover that difference in perspective, like what is it about people like me that often misinterpret the way that you sort of think about this, they could offer you information that really reveals your own blind spots about them. And so you don't have to work at first towards changing their mind, just work towards making their position a viable position for a reasonable, rational human being so that you can then see them that way. And that will in itself be insightful to you. That will in itself sort of give you a bigger perspective. So you're already moving forward a little bit. The other upside is that now you're also building trust with that person, mm-hmm. you're building a relationship by asking yep. these questions. And now they're going to reveal more about themselves as you go forward. And so you sort of have to build this up iteratively. And that's why it takes time. But if you could see the world through people that you are that you previously found baffling, you have a much bigger perspective of things. You're able to see it in stereo vision sort of from two different perspectives, even if you disagree with that position, right? But you can at least see how it got there. Very good. I like that. I want to get into some of the practicality of your steps here, your methodology. And in your book, you say that your most simple recommendation to determine up front whether you're dealing with a conflict of the heart, the head, or the hands. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very interesting way to quickly assess what you're dealing with. But tell the audience what that means. Like, what are these individual, what are the telltale signs? Yeah, so the conflict of the head is really just like about information. It's like I disagree that the capital of, you know, California, Sacramento, I think it's it's, it's uh, Paris, you know. And so you could look it up somewhere and then it's resolved. So this is what we think a lot of arguments are about. Like, oh yeah, this has to be the better idea because I have the information, the evidence and scientists say this and all this stuff. But the thing that we missed from that kind of conversation is that there are values embedded in these statistics, these numbers. Like, why is it important to know the capital? Why is it important to know how people are dying? Like, why is it important to protect these people and to hurt these people? Whatever it happens to be, there's these values about I'm protecting my. And so that's the realm of the heart, right? Which is like subjective. It's about I like uh, mint chip ice cream more than strawberry ice cream, and you like you do the reverse. I can give you all the statistics about mint chip ice cream that's not going to convince you. Ultimately, it's a preference, it's a value, it's a belief. And so when you get stuck in these conversations, our instinct is to make it about data, evidence, whatever, in the head. The tip that I give is that instead of moving to evidence, move it to some kind of experiment or test. Like Take all this information you have, take all the values and beliefs you have, and make a prediction about what will happen if we do nothing. Make a prediction about what will happen if we do A, B, or nothing, and then see what happens. And then that way, you're not necessarily resorting to information. You're going to both learn from what actually does unfold. You could both be wrong, and you're both going to learn that I thought Minship was the best ice cream, but it turns out that I thought that that was so obvious that it would just be the bestseller next year or something. I mean, it's not the case. Or this could apply up from obviously trivial things like food preferences to political preferences or policy preferences or which candidate is the best to vote for. Or, you know, which priorities should we have as a company? You could say like, oh, if we did this instead of that, that our revenue would drop and we would lose customers and our customer satisfaction would drop and some employees, you know, quit. And then you could see, did that actually happen? Because most of the time our prediction feels certain, but then reality happens and something else happens and it sort of builds this humility cycle into it where it's like, I'm not as confident anymore and I need to learn more before being sort of making these predictions in the future and get better at it over time. Okay, so that's the... That's the hands. So the hands is about like, let's put this into practice. Let's do something and learn from it. And that way, you know, you're not stuck having this conversation about what's real or what's important. You just do something and then you learn about whether or not it was as important as you thought it was or was less important than you thought it was. And it helps you get unstuck. So what's a quick way to identify this? If I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'm trying to identify 
Yeah, and by the way, why is that important? So help us better understand yes. what these three, you know, really mean, and then the telltale signs that we can quickly use to identify what we're dealing with, so that we know how best to respond to somebody. Yeah, so it's important because when you're talking about something that sort of collapses down into a belief or a value, there's not really a way to to move that. Right, you're going to have to either change it into a question about what's real, what's true, like on on data and evidence which doesn't actually work. And this, so the way to get unstuck, because like most times even when there's a problem and there's a disagreement, it's because there's some sort of urgency to it, right? Like you have to do something. And if we just keep on talking about it, like the same way that we're talking about climate change or we're talking about sort of healthcare or income inequality or all these things, we're not making any progress on the problems in the meantime. We're still stuck talking about whether or not they're important to think about. And so the way to get unstuck is by just saying, let's just take everything that we believe for granted and just assume that we're going to have different beliefs there and then predict the future so that we can then become smarter in the future. And the way that you sort of notice this is, you know, you can almost go back to was this conversation productive? Is there something we can do to get smarter between now and our next conversation and that we, so that we can pick it up? And we don't have to just argue, you know, as Jeff Bezos has this like phrase about like arguing to exhaustion, like the last man standing is who wins, right? And that's what we do a lot of these conversations. Like whoever just like gives up, you know, first is the loser. Instead, let's just both say like, here's my prediction. Regardless of what happens, you get sort of accountable for that prediction. And you're no longer stuck. You feel like you can move forward. Sometimes people call this disagree and commit. Sometimes people go just call it, you know, let's test the hypothesis. You know, this is how the scientific method works. Scientists don't spend a lot of time arguing about, you know, is it important to study this? They just, you know, study it and then they see what happens. And I think we can apply that to a lot of other domains. You don't need a laboratory to do this. Like it could be around the dinner table and sort of have the same effect. Just out of curiosity, was Jeff Bezos being, you know, derisive of that approach to arguments? You know, last man standing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's very much against <laughs> when I was working there in like late nineties, you know how companies eventually they grow and they give all these teams and you have you need more meetings to stay in touch with all the different he's like, yeah. everyone stop having meetings. Stop talking to each other. Instead, you each create your own like sort of fitness function and you're accountable for that and you treat everybody else as a client, even internally at the company. And he hated sort of this proliferation of cross-functional meetings that would come up. And I think, you know, this is sort of one of his ways of breaking that up is saying like, let's not talk about things to exhaustion. Let's just say like, we've got 70% of the data, let's go forward and let's learn from it and see if we can make a better prediction next time. I like that. I think we'd all agree that our own anxieties and emotions often trip us up. You know, I was talking about the arguments that I have with my wife, for example. And sometimes it's just, you're just triggering stuff that goes, you know, it's ancient. It's just, well, if you've been married for any reasonable period of time or mm -hmm. partnered for a reasonable period of time, you're going to find that there's just these, you know, these set triggers. Mm -hmm. And so they allow us to get triggered. We're not even conscious of it most of the time. And they throw us off center. And then, of course, the arguments go south and you hurt feelings and then it takes time to unwind them. And so tell us about, I think this is actually a really big one. So tell us how you've learned to successfully manage this. Like, how do you keep the emotions out? And when you feel your own or you're sensing somebody else's, you can see the face turning red or, you know, they're stammering a little bit. Tell us yeah. on both sides of the equation how you manage that. Yeah, this is a really interesting one because the reason that we oftentimes get into this and that we get triggered is, and then we sort of pull in all the past, you know, arguments we have is because we don't want to have the argument. We want to get out of it. Like, so we oftentimes try to think, what do I have to like just win this and get it over with? The key for me has been to think of this as like, okay, we have this recurring argument. How can we have a more enjoyable version of it this time? How can we sort of avoid that point where we're just becoming entrenched and entrenched to think about like, isn't it interesting how we're now back in this dance of this argument? Like, And remember what we did last time? We did this, that. What could we do differently this time to sort of try something else? You know, because nobody likes to just repeat the same argument over and over again. And so this is a way to, you know, I oftentimes think about it as sort of a dance. You don't want to do the same moves over and over again. Try something new. And so like, okay, well, what if we're a list of all the things? Or what if we flip the coin? Or this could make it more fun. But our anxiety isn't going to respond to it in the same way. We're not going to try to avoid it and get out of it as quickly as possible. So I think of arguments as weeds in a garden. They're always going to come back. They're always going to be there. They're always going to be slightly annoying, but you can start to appreciate them as some kind of repetitional seasonal element to a relationship that is part of what makes it sort of the thing that it is. And 
another metaphor is like going to a picnic, there's oftentimes flies and bugs and, you know, all these things. And if you can think about the flies and the bugs and the wind and the your napkins blow away as part of the picnic, as part of the experience of going out and doing that in the first place, then you don't try to fight it as much. So what you're saying is is to have this agreement or even from a leadership standpoint, a little coaching. Yeah. So if you pick up very quickly that this is going to be an argument where you can feel that somebody's got opposing viewpoint, something that's going to create conflict, something that could trigger a bad discussion, you're saying, hey, let's, before we do this, let's create some new ground rules. Let's ensure this is a positive discussion and let's see if we can both learn from this. Is that what you're saying? So that you don't allow it to get into something before you say, whoa, 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 let's start all over here. You're actually saying, let's do it right now. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, yeah. It's it's about sort of bringing in something new that's going to sort of change the course. Because the hardest part about disagreement is becoming sort of awake in the beginning of it and sort of realizing that you're about to enter it and then realizing that you have the agency to dance around it. And that's exactly what needs to happen. But it's hard. And both people have to sort of develop the skill over time. But one way to do it is by just pointing to it. It's like, oh, yeah, isn't it weird that we're having this again? Do you want to have the same one we had last time? Or should we mix it up? Especially in longer-term relationships. Like It sort of deflates the seriousness of it. It takes you out of that program sort of routine that you've already got loaded up. And so it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I don't want to do that again. That's not pleasant. It's not interesting. Nothing ever comes of it. Let's do something different. And that sort of builds the collaboration, the creativity back and brings it back into the conversation, which is even just a little bit is oftentimes all you need to get through it. Yeah, I think it's disarming, right? I mean, you just anticipated exactly what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, that, you know, you automatically start off with an ally as opposed to somebody that wants to beat you. Yeah. So let me challenge you here. Trump, no Trump, Brexit, no Brexit. These are two very passionate issues for people, Mm -hmm. right? Doesn't seem to be a lot of people in the middle. You either like Trump or you don't like Trump. You're either in favor of Brexit or not in favor. And so when you bring people together that are very passionate about their viewpoints, as you sort of suggested early on, the indication is, you know, the thinking that goes to my mind is like, how could he possibly think that when I'm so certain in my thinking. Yeah. So if we get into over a beer, or frankly, this is a metaphor for work experiences, do we go forward with this project or not? Do we stop putting money into it or we keep going? There's a million different options of this that have people polarized. So how do you handle these kinds of very emotional kinds of things where you're not necessarily, even if you coach me and say, hey, let's just try to have a positive discussion. I still think you're crazy for thinking the way you're thinking. You're still thinking I'm crazy. So how do we get there? Yeah, well, you said it. Like, I think the fact that we think each other are crazy is the question. Like, why do we think we're crazy? Why do I think you're crazy and you think I'm crazy? What do you not know about me and what do I not know about you that make us like completely unable to see each other as like non-crazy? And I think that's the opening to the questioning that you can do. I talk a lot about like these big open-ended questions that invite surprising answers. So ask questions that you don't know the answers to, that no matter what they say is going to surprise you and give you new information, new insight into how they sort of think about things. Give me an example. So say that you're with your polar opposite political opponent. You could ask things like, how do your political beliefs form? Like, what was your upbringing? Who were your role models? How has this position helped you in recent times? Like, how has this helped you? Things you find are important. What do you think is going to happen if what I think should happen happens? Like, what do you think is going to happen if what you want to happen happens? Like, how is this going to change your world? How is it going to make it better? And so just sort of like poking around, you can ask questions all the way up and down from specific to really broad to get a picture of like who they are. The the fact that I don't understand them is the first challenge here. And the more radically different they are, you you almost imagine like the most demonized, you know, dehumanized person in history. You know, what is it that created that person? You will get interesting information. Just remember that you don't necessarily have to validate them. You don't have to say that because I'm listening to your story, I endorse the positions that you've you've sort of emerged out of. But I do want to understand how they formed in the first place. And what's the goal of that? What's the goal is to, yeah. first of all, it takes you out of the battle stance. The things that they're going to talk about aren't going to be black and white, like you're wrong, I'm right kind of stuff. It's going to be like, oh, yeah, well, this is my upbringing. This is what happened to me. 
And this is sort of how I see things. So sort of remember that you need to keep your blood pressure down, that kind of thing. Secondly, it builds relationships. How often do people on the other side of the political divide ask open questions Never. of each other? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So right. it's like, wow, there's one person on the other side that isn't crazy that sort of plants the seed that maybe there is hope, you know, a little bit of hope that there could be another kind of conversation that happens because we oftentimes just completely block off the entire camp and say, nobody over there can talk to me. And so it does something for them there. Third, I think that when you talk about stories, talk about these perspectives, it creates a bit of space. You're wandering around in like this bigger sort of story. And eventually they're going to ask you questions that are similar, and that will sort of allow them to learn from you. And so you're just going to build this relationship. And in a similar sense, like, you may not change their mind in one sitting. You might come away saying, like, wow, I've never had an enjoyable conversation with a person on the other side of the political spectrum for me. That was cool. Let's do it again sometime and sort of see where that goes. Um, that's a win for me. I think that's, like, the biggest fruit you can get is, like, this desire to continue understanding each other, understanding, and eventually your perspectives are going to both change to the point where you, you no longer see each other as opponents. Well, you also sort of mitigate the other person's perception that you're an unreasonable, you know, intolerant right. person, right? So right. as you said earlier, you're building greater trust that way, which then opens right. the door for maybe a little bit more deeper conversations as to where do we actually go with this? Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. we often like lower ourselves to other side's worst behavior. Like you could see how in politics, like, you know, Mitch McConnell saying like, well, the Democrats did this in the Clinton, you know, thing. So we're going to do it now. Right. So whatever you do towards them, they're going to do back towards you at some point in the worst possible form. And so if you could be an example of an elevated or sort of like more curious sort of positioning or conversation, they could then emulate that. Like, well, you like sort of gave me space to talk last time. I'm going to give you some space now. And so this kind of mirroring is, is really important to think about. I'm so glad you mentioned that because unfortunately, we're all exposed to that. Right. We see what these government leaders do and how they seem like mortal enemies. You know, be interesting to see whether they live next door to each other and cut each other's hedges. And all we're (laughs) seeing is the worst behavior. But, you know, in terms of just the media that we see, it's denigration of one to the other automatically if you're a democrat you're this and if you're a republican you're this and that unfortunately creates this really bad example and so we tend to oh those marketing people you know they're all this way or Mm -hmm. people in finance all they ever want is x you know and so we just sort of give this broad brush and i i love the recommendation you're making which is Let's be higher-minded about this. Let's take the higher road here. Let's Mm -hmm. demonstrate that we can lead and be civil. I think we're missing so much civility in society, and so I I really want to punctuate that recommendation. It's very good. And I want to dig further into your solutions here, and you, you mentioned this a minute ago, but let me set this up for the audience. You said that there are four ways to deal with disagreements, and I think everybody's going to understand at least the first three, and then the fourth one is the one that is really the one that you're recommending. So the first one is we just shut them down with our power. Mm-hmm. I've already made the decision. This is the way we're going to go. I don't want to hear any more about it. Right. We can use our reasons to kill the debate. And we just say, look, that's just not the way we do things here. And so I don't want to hear that either, which is another form of shutting it down. Or we can avoid it. We just say, I don't have time for this conversation. Or we just avoid the interaction. And then the final one is what you called, and you mentioned it earlier, this voice of possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to hear the harps in heaven when I hear that expression. <laughs> right. So yeah. we've already discussed why avoiding a conflict is bad leadership. Tell us why the other two are equally unproductive. I kind of set them up so that it would be obvious, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. And then tell us how we can turn a disagreement into something really productive. So right. take this just a little bit further. We've been you know, cutting into the edges on this a little bit in the last few minutes, but yeah. really punctuate this idea of a voice of possibility. Okay, so we've got the voice of power, and we understand why that has sort of evolved in our culture. Like it's the might makes right, um, it's my way or the highway kind of thinking. And and this works because you can almost see it in our language. We talk about conflict resolution. All of our strategies that have evolved are about shutting it down. We see the disagreement as a problem. And so we resolve it by shutting it down with our power. We resolve it by shutting it down with our reason. I say, like, this is true because, you know, this poll said so. This is true because the scientific research said so. Even if that other person doesn't sort of respect the same institution of truth that we do. And so that only works in smaller groups where everyone adheres to the same sort of authority. But it does sort of 
speak to the same path as powers. Like this is true because of someone more powerful said so. And those are the two. Like those are the two that we really think about like in our culture, power and reason. And we oftentimes say like, let's be reasonable. Let's, let's sort of like do that one, even if it doesn't work anymore. When neither of those two things work, we use the voice of avoidance, right? Which is like, okay, well, A doesn't work, B doesn't work. All I can do is flip a table and leave or shut the door and say like, this is a topic that's I know off limits. We can no longer discuss religion or or you know sex or whatever it happens to be. So that's one way to do it. But all three of these things, they take this potential opportunity of integrating perspectives to find a mutual solution. They just say like, we don't want that. We don't want the solution. We're just gonna pretend like it's not there. The voice of possibility is saying, okay, power didn't work, reason doesn't work. I can't avoid it. What am I missing? What else is, is there? And sort of saying like, okay, well. Everything we try doesn't work. Instead of just giving up, let's keep looking. Let's keep looking together because we're both sort of stuck in this, this world of having no solutions. And it's that collaboration that sort of can then embark from there and say, okay, well, what else can we do? What are the, like, some, just like throw some weird ideas out there. Let's start to think about, you know, the fact that it's possible that we have to invent a new solution here. And that's the trailhead, I think, for productive disagreement is first sort of figuring out how to recruit that person to your side as like part of your team to solve this problem together and yeah. building that up over time. Because there's often the saying, like, if you do the same thing over and over again, it doesn't work. It's sort of like the definition of insanity in some senses. Like, so we got to try something different. And that's what the voice of possibility says. It's like, let's try something different this time. Let's just invent something new. Let's look where we haven't looked before. Let's try something and just, you know, start to learn from it. And hopefully we'll build this up over time and we'll get out of this sort of problem. Think about your work experience. You know, as I'm listening to this and as I read your book, I was thinking about, you know, past situations. You can't be in leadership and not have people disagreeing with you. Mm-hmm. And and what's interesting is, is that somebody who's in total agreement with 90% of the things that you're doing, the one time you think you're going to have their complete support, they're going to go, I don't think this makes any sense at all. <laughs> and you, now you've got a new challenge, right? right? And so what I've learned is that particularly for the people who are consistently against what you're thinking is, or if they just, you know, you have this polarized viewpoint of the world and you're in conflict with that person because of it, you know, they just can't take you seriously or you can't take them seriously. What I found was two things that really helped me. One was spending time with them outside of the argument. Mm-hmm. So finding opportunities to be with that person, build rapport, build some trust, independent of the discussions that created the problems for us. Right. The other one was, and this is more of a leadership thing, but it was really helpful for me. And that was to find the common ground and recognize it. Let's say somebody working for me who was, you know, always biting at my heels, you know, sort of, Mm -hmm. I don't agree. This isn't the way we should be doing this. This is wrong. Whatever they're expressing. What I found was by acknowledging the things that they were doing that I thought were actually really good and helpful and supportive and calling it out and acknowledging and saying, look what this person's doing, that you began to remind that person and even remind yourself that, we don't disagree on everything. Mm-hmm. We just disagree on some core issues that may or may not have any relevance to work sometimes, or we may disagree on this project, but not on all projects. And I find that that just sort of loosens things up like a WD-40 in terms of mm-hmm. whether or not people want to engage with you in these kinds of difficult conversations. So yeah. I wanted to just see if that matches up to your own experience. Absolutely. And I think both of those sort of speak to this idea that I talk about around cultivating a new space. Oftentimes when you're stuck in a you know a hard disagreement, you're always having that disagreement with the same power dynamic. And if you can disrupt that power dynamic, that's part of the environment where the other person might sort of take a different approach. So going on a walk, having a drink, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of pointing out like the things you do have in common, this creates a different kind of space, right? A space where, you know, it's not just black and white. There is all these other, we're all rich, complex human beings. And we're all bringing something different to the table. Sometimes these conflicts are happening between someone who's been in the career for 30 years and someone who's just out of college. Or, you know, maybe it's, you know, someone who grew up internationally and someone in the United States or different economic positions or whatever they happen to be. There's all these differences. We're bringing this to the table. Now, whenever there's this disagreement, it's saying that there's something about this sort of resonance between these two perspectives that is important to dig up. And so by cultivating this neutral space, you could 
figure out what that is. And it might only be 5% of what they say that has this gold nugget inside of it. And you can discard the other 95% as like, you know, just, we all sort of like talk a lot and we all sometimes just fill a space with words. But like sometimes they always find 1% or 5% or 10% of what they say is really new and interesting. And that's how you can find it. And you got to try disrupting the space a little bit sometimes to get there. I totally love that idea, cultivating neutral space. Hey, Buster, I'd like to take a brief break from our conversation right now and ask you a few questions about your personal interests, influences, and life philosophy. If you've listened to our podcast before, we call this the heartbeat round because all of these questions are brief. What we want is for you to answer each of them really instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. You game? I'm game. Let's do it. Okay. All right, here we go. A well-known public figure you believe is masterful in making disagreements more productive. Oh, man. I wish I had a better answer for this because all of them I think of as still being partisan a little bit. But I would put Barack Obama on that list. I'd put Joe Rogan on that list. I'd put David Brooks on that list and Sarah Silverman, which you know, I'm sure that whoever, whichever side you're on, you'll dislike half of them. But I think they do try to knit together things and bring people on that sort of disconfirm the common beliefs as much as they can. The best leadership lesson you learned from Jeff Bezos during the years you worked at Amazon? I would say it's about his relentless patience for the world to change. And I remember him announcing that he would build the Kindle 10 years before he actually launched it and said, like, time's not right. We're just going to wait till the time is right. And like, wow, you're thinking on a much different timescale than me. And I thought that was really interesting. And I've learned a lot from that. What's the least effective leadership lesson you learned from Jeff Bezos (laughs) during the years you worked at Amazon? Oh, man. So I think probably, at least from my perspective, he tends to think of people as robots and gears and sort of packages to move through a warehouse. And it's a very much a algorithmic view of the world and, you know, loses a little bit of humanity if you're one of those little robots you know, in, in the building. So I think that would be what I wouldn't learn from him. One book you wish everyone in the world would read? So I'll pick a hard one if I can force them to read it. Energy and Civilization by Vaclav Smil was like such a mind-blowing book. It's really long. It's really epic in its scope and brilliant. And it changed the way I think about the world. Wow. That one hasn't come up before. (laughs) (laughs) A prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. Well, I think almost everything that we think will come true will come true. I just think that it will happen slower. So I think climate change is going to happen. It's just going to happen slower. I think AI and the general intelligence kind of thing is going to happen just not as fast. I think we'll probably solve things like death as like just through like old age. And I bet aliens are out there and you know all these things I think are going to come true. But who knows what the timing is? Oftentimes I predict things happen in five years and they take 15 or 20, maybe it's 50 or 100. So I'm putting you down for aliens and fives. <laughs> the trait you admire most in other people. I really like people that have sort of an opponent process in their virtues, like so that are both direct and really kind or really decisive and full of self-doubt at the same time. That sort of seem paradoxical, but people that could both appreciate melancholy and sort of have an optimistic view of the world. I think those are the kinds of people that I like the most. A life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. Oh, man. I think seeing everything through developmental frameworks has really took me a lot lot longer than I wish. Like we go through school, but we never learn that development is something that extends beyond 12th grade and sort of thinking about our development sort of philosophy that expands way beyond that. I wish I had learned that earlier. Your favorite person to follow on Twitter? Oh man, I got a lot. Um, I'll say Venkatesh Rao, VGR on Twitter, just because he is unpredictable and is always going to take you down some weird conversational path. So he's great. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading? Oh, man, I don't read magazines or newspapers much. But can I say, On Being is a, is a podcast that I never miss mm-hmm. an episode of. Krista Tippett? Yep, Krista Tippett. Mm-hmm. Skill improvement you're working on right now? I am learning to play the piano at age 43, um, and I'm learning how to draw. I had to sort of learn that for the book, but you know, these are two that are more on the right side and the part that gets neglected. So I'm really, really enjoying them right now. Great. You're sending them for the word heart. Uh, I think I'm going to go with connection. Sort of feeling connected is heart. Awesome. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. This is easy. I would say over-optimization. Picking one metric and then just like running it into the ground is always the recipe for failure in my book. (laughs) And your favorite quote or mantra? Uh, So let's see. 
I'm going to go with nullius in verba, which is a Latin phrase that means take no one's word for it. And it is, you know, I believe it's inscribed on the Oracle of Delphi in, in Greece and uh, the Royal Society of London. It just means like find your primary sources yourself and don't take anyone's word for it. I love Myself. It. Yeah, that's, yes. that's up there too. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, these have been wonderful answers. So thank you for going through this with me. Our audience loves the heartbeat round because of fun. all the insights <laughs> that it shares. So thank you. And I uh, want to get back to our conversation. Awesome. At the end of your book, Buster, you say that unproductive disagreement, quote unquote, is the greatest existential threat to our civilization and future prosperity. <laughs> That's quite an assertion, right? But I, none of us are going to disagree these days. And so I asked you this question about, is there hope? And I'm just wondering in the bigger picture here, when you see how broken our society is in terms of how we handle disagreements, and I'll call out and put a framework around the political arguments that go on. And, you know, I've heard historians say, oh, you know, Jefferson and, and Washington, and they always had their debates. And so you go back 250 years mm -hmm. and we've always been this way. And I'm not so sure that it's as bad as it is today. And so... Is there hope and what's the path forward? Yeah, that's such an important question for us right now. It's really the, the reason I had to write this is because I do believe there is hope. And I think we all know the answer. We all know that being able to productively disagree is so important to us right now. We just don't know how to do it. And so I think that's the hard part for us right now is we need to move from the world of just knowing the answer and and learn how to do it. We have to feel that experiential firsthand like I want everyone to have a conversation that they thought was impossible to have and to have it be productive and enjoyable and meaningful and insightful and connective because by feeling it and experiencing it firsthand, that's how we change our expectations for our leaders and for you know our policymakers and for our bosses and for our you know direct reporters, whoever it happens to be. Because until we can sort of create that expectation from a firsthand experience, we're really just telling people that there's a problem and telling them to fix it. We have to each embody that sort of firsthand knowledge of knowing the skill, knowing that we're developing it, knowing that it's hard. And I think that's the bottoms up way that we can bring hope back into our policy and our political conversation because it's there. We're just missing that crucial piece of how, but I think it's there. Well, you know, it's interesting because you just made me think that I'm sort of like seeing myself with a team of people that I'm managing. So this is obviously a fantasy at this point, but in the past, applying what you just said, which is to say to your team, look around. And all you see is dissension. All you see are people taking shots at each other, most of them unfairly. And we're going to take the higher road. We are going to be the ones who are committed to having civil disagreements, if you will. And so, I mean, obviously your book lays out a lot of the ways that they can do that. And maybe you give the book to everyone and discuss it and talk about those methodologies that we've been discussing here for the last hour. But the idea that you tell people that, look, this is what I'm expecting. I'm expecting you to take a higher road. I'm expecting you to be collaborative. I'm expecting you to have a longer view of working with people in terms of your disagreements with them and their disagreements with you. I think you're right. I mean, I think it leads us to you, we need to be the change that we're looking for. And that's really where change comes from anyway. Somebody stepping yeah. up and saying, we're going to do it differently. So that's actually very inspiring. Oh, yeah. It's not just something that would be cool to do. It's, it's like, it's our responsibility to, you know, sort of exemplify the things, you know, our values and, and what we want the world to turn into, because that's the only way we can change the world is by changing ourselves and sort of being the example that others can follow. Totally agree. Hey, before I let you go, is there anything that you learned in writing this book that you didn't know? You know, having written a book, I think when you start to put ideas on paper, you realize, wow, I'm expressing something that I actually hadn't thought before. Yeah. So I'm just curious, is there anything that you learned about managing and, and having successful disagreements with people that was like an epiphany for you mm -hmm. that uh, kind of would be worthy of sharing with our audience as we head out? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that might sound unbelievable or hard to believe is that, believe it or not, whenever a disagreement pops up in my life today, like my eyes light up and I'm like, wow, okay, this is something we can dig into, which is a 180 degree turn from how I was before, sort of dreading it and sort of like clenching up and getting tense. And it didn't take that long to switch, right? And so that's the thing that I felt, you know, you have to experience firsthand is that it's possible that all the things that we're really, we're dreading and we're feeling frustrated and stuck about, 
those obstacles, those conversations aren't that hard. They're not impossible. They just require a slight mindset shift to get 1%, 5% better at disagreement. And suddenly they all sort of become these opportunities rather than problems. And the hardest part for me to have believed beginning the book would be like, it would be enjoyable. And so I, I definitely feel like it's important to remember that because that's what keeps us going is to enjoy our interactions with others, to build these relationships, to find them meaningful and fulfilling. And to that extent, like what better area for us to focus on at this point in time? And like, this is what will knit us back together as a community. Thank you. That I'm glad I asked that because that's equally inspiring. And on behalf of our audience, I want to thank you for joining us. I wish you, we wish you tremendous success with your book. And thank you so very much for just being a part of this and for sharing your new insights with us and everything that you've learned in your experience professionally and putting the book together. It's pretty wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was you know an honor to be here and I really enjoyed it myself as well. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Buster. Before we go, I want to make the obvious point that we never pass around a collection basket after every episode and ask for financial contributions. All we hope is that if you find our work valuable, you'll introduce us to your friends and perhaps even write us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it, my friends. We're just hoping for a little love in return. And as always, as we go, I want to thank my wonderful team, including Susan DeRoche, Ken Boynton, Kerry Finnessy, Randy Yant, Josh Richard, Marjana Novkovic, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and thanking you very, very much for listening. Mm-hmm.